welcome to the podcast of the Vine Church in Fullerton, California. For more information, visit thevineoc.com. This is a reading from the Gospel according to John, chapter 1, verses 47 through 49. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are the God who sees us. I pray, Lord, just for your spirit to be at work in a powerful way this morning, that you would open our eyes to see you as you see us, that you'd open our ears to hear your voice, and that through your word, God, that you would speak, that you would impact us, God, so that we leave this place transformed. But we offer you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, good morning again. Hope you're doing well. Last Sunday, we concluded our fall vision series. And if you weren't with us, we encourage you to listen online as I believe it was a formational series for where God is leading us as a church. And so you can listen online if you're uh, not with us. But just by way of recap, in this series, we were talking about how God has given us a, a big vision as a church. And the vision God has given us is to see our cities transformed with the love of Jesus Christ. And we talked about how God has given us a vision for a city, for a region, and not just for a church. And so then we began a discussion of how we can begin to step into that vision together. And we talked about three main things, just kind of by way of recap. And first, we talked about how how the first thing we are called to is that we are called to intimacy, that we are called to a relationship of intimacy with Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me, in other words, if you stay close to me, you will bear much fruit. So, So we are called to intimacy. And second, we saw that we are called to follow. That actually the invitation, the the primary invitation of Jesus was not just, hey, you know, believe a few things about me and then you'll go to heaven when you die. No, the invitation of Jesus was follow me. In other words, follow me with your life. And so we saw that what this involves, what following Jesus involves is organizing our lives around three main goals. First, being with Jesus, that's intimacy. Second, becoming like Jesus, that's what we might call formation. Then third, doing the things that Jesus did. And so that's what we might refer to as mission. And so that's the second thing. But then last week we talked about how we are called to follow Jesus, not just individually as isolated individuals, but as a community. We are called to follow Jesus together. We are called to belong. And Dennis and Carrie did just an amazing job last week. So thankful for that message. Please listen online if you weren't there. But they had four main points. And they talked about how we are called to community. And, and second, that, that we are called to make ourselves at home 
in a family. In other words, that the church is not just a place you visit. It's, it's not a business. It's what it is. It's a family where we are called to belong and where everyone has a place. The third point was that we are called to risk. In other words, the entering community, this actually involves a sense of risk, but that it is worth it. And then their last point was that we are called to offer what we have, not what we don't have, but what we have with generosity and without fear. And so now that we're sort of all caught up, <laughs> where, where to next? Well, in the past couple of weeks, as I've just been in prayer, uh, I, I feel what the Lord has been saying to me is, is speak to my people about my love for them. And I feel like I just keep hearing this. And um, so I'm just um, really excited to see what God wants to do in this new series. And I just have the strongest impression that he really wants us not just to know about his love, but that he actually wants us to know his love, to taste and see that he is good, to actually receive it and experience it in our lives because this is ultimately what changes us. This ties to our vision to, to, to see our lives and our cities transform. It's actually God's love that changes us. For God so loved the world. We love, the Bible says, because he first loved us. It was God's love that changes us. And so we're beginning a series today called All You Need Is Love. A little nod to the Beatles. <laughs> but transposed in a biblical context. And so we're talking in this series about God's love and how we can be transformed by God's love and therefore become agents of his love in the world. And so we're going to be just sort of in the next several weeks, just sort of bathing in God's love. And for me, that sounds like a lot of fun. And but also like really necessary because what I found is that one sermon, one message, one Bible study on God's love is not enough for it to really get down here. It just, it takes time. So we're just going to kind of marinate in God's love because that is what we need. We have so many things and maybe old tapes playing in our head or messages from other people or culture that just, that kind of prevents us from actually believing and receiving God's love. But he wants this to actually be a reality, not only in our heads, but also in our hearts such that it changes our lives. And so that's what we're going to be talking about in this series. And I guess I've alluded to this, but if you've been in church uh, for any length of time, you know the truth, that God loves you. But it's one thing to know it up here. It's another thing to know it down here. And I believe that for many of us, it's easy to believe, at least for myself, it's easy to believe that God loves other people. That, that, that God so loved the world in kind of a general sense, yes, that's very easy for me to believe. But the idea that God loves me, that is a different thing entirely. That for me, at least, that has been much harder to truly believe. And I, I think a major reason for many of us is sometimes we feel maybe overlooked by God. Sometimes we feel forgotten by God. Sometimes we feel unseen by God. So today, I want to talk about the God who sees us. That God is a God who sees you, that he knows you, and therefore that he loves you. And to help us today, we're going to look at the story of a woman named Hagar from the Old Testament. You maybe, you haven't heard her name, but she is an amazing woman. And she was someone who felt forgotten by God. She felt alone until she encountered the God who sees. Before we look at the story, I want to take a step back and just talk for a minute just about this need that I believe we all have to be seen. And one way of seeing this is to think about children. So if you have kids or if you've spent much time around kids, what is one of the main things they say over and over and over and over again. Look. Daddy, look. Mommy, look, 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 look. Over and over and over and over. Why, why, what is that? 
they long to be seen. They long to be seen. The funniest thing happened yesterday. So I, I really couldn't have planned this any better. Yesterday, as I was preparing this message, I overheard my five-year-old daughter, Elizabeth, uh, in the other room. She was playing with her Barbie. And apparently in this scene, her Barbie was a famous gymnast. And I overheard her singing this song. I'm so famous. Everyone should see me. And of course, that was so cute. But what that also reveals is this deep desire that children have. And I believe that we all have to be seen. Uh, There's a family who used to be part of our church. And uh, the kids were very insistent that this would be their church home. And so the parents asked them why. And they said, because at this church, we feel seen. I thought, wow, may we never lose that. May we never lose it. May we always be a church who sees even the little ones, even those who many overlook. May we always be a people who see. Now, as we get older, this desire to be seen, it doesn't go away. It just looks different. For example, teenagers want to be seen. I read an article this past week describing teens and millennials as generation notification. And of course, this isn't limited to teens and millennials, but when people post something on social media, they are what? They're, they're looking for a response. And I believe they're actually, what is they're, they're looking to be seen. Have you ever done that though? Where you, you, know, you post something on social media, whatever your platform of choice is, and then you just kind of wait. Is somebody going to click like? Is someone going to you know, have a comment? And you just kind of, you're, you're waiting. Why? You want to be seen. And actually studies show that that actually when you post something and you get that little red flag or whatever it is, that actually you get a hit of dopamine in your brain, which is why social media can become addictive. But I think what's happening on a deeper level, on a spiritual, on a psychological level, is this deep desire to be seen. Fascinating, in this article I read, it talked about how people would rather receive a negative notification, in other words, someone leaving a snarky comment, rather than no notification, no uh, notification at all. Why? Because they said, quote, at least I'm not unseen. They would rather be seen in a negative light than unseen. That just, again, that reveals this deep need and desire we have to be seen. But it's not just kids, it's not just teenagers. Adults long to be seen. Single people long to be seen. Married people long to be seen. And actually, just because you're in a marriage doesn't mean you're seen. You can be in a marriage and feel unseen. People advancing in their years in their 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, long to be seen. And in a culture that privileges youth, people can often feel overlooked as they grow older. People long to be seen. And I think the reason is because we all know that to be seen on, on some level is to be known. And to be known on some level is to be loved. So today we're going to talk about the God who sees. And we're going to look at this story we read a moment ago from Genesis chapter 16. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn there. Uh, Otherwise, you can follow along on the screens. And we're going to read about someone who was seen by God and how it transformed her life forever. Now, just a a bit of context here. I think this is important to understand. Uh, Earlier in uh, Genesis chapter 12, we read of a guy named Abram, who would later come to be called Abraham. And, And he and his wife, Sarai, who would later 
become Sarah. They were just sort of minding their business. And, and one day God interrupts them and calls them on a journey. And God tells Abram to leave his family, to leave his country, to leave his father's household, to leave security and all that they know and that they love to follow him. And it's this, this faith-stretching call. And God promises Abram that even in his old age, and even in his wife's old age, they will bear a son and will have many descendants, and that through their offspring, the nations will be blessed. So Abram says, yes, as crazy as it sounded, them being old, as crazy as it sounded, they said yes to follow God. Now, in that cultural context, to not have children was a source uh, of shame, was to become an object of, of ridicule. And, and, and so they're willing to leave their sense of security and everything they know and love to sort of erase this sense of shame and also to inherit the promise of God. Now, soon after they begin their journey, Abram starts making mistakes. Sometimes we can idealize the heroes of the faith as though they're perfect and while we, you know, we're not. And, but actually, Abram, Sarah, they made mistakes. And so what this shows us, something very important about the life of faith, that to have faith doesn't mean that you never make mistakes. It actually means that you do, that we often do. And, and when you read through Genesis, you see that Abram had good moments, he had bad moments, just like the rest of us. That God is faithful to his promise. And even though Abram messes up in Genesis 15 verse 5, God says to Abram basically, hey, let's go outside together and let's look up at the stars. And if you can count the stars, that's how many descendants you're going to have. God is saying, look, I am faithful to my promise. Abram, you're going to be a father of many, many nations. Now, after that, you might think that God would say, you know, God said it. I believe it that settles it. And that he would just kind of walk with this confidence and, and this patience the rest of his life, but that is not what happens. And where we drop in here in verse, excuse me, chapter 16, Abram and Sarai are in a moment of crisis. This is a moment of desperation. And so let's turn to chapter 16, and this is where we meet Hagar, but let's pick it up in verse 1. It says, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through here. So Sarah, Sarai rather has become just sort of incredibly desperate. I mean, and think about it. She's waited decades. We can kind of get a little bent out of shape when we've waited, you know, seven minutes, seven hours seven days. She's waited seven decades. Think about that. Some of you have been waiting and it's been a while. She waited seven decades. And so she wakes up one day and she says, this isn't working. Uh, I, I think we need to help God out. I know Abram, God came to help us, but it seems like maybe he's pretty busy and I think we need to help him. Have you ever felt that way? If he was like, I don't know, is God kind of otherwise occupied? Is he just kind of feels like he's MIA? And so maybe, maybe we better help God out. So we are told that Sarai, Abram's wife, had, had been unable to conceive a child, but she gets this idea. She thinks, aha, there is an Egyptian servant, Egyptian slave in the house. And here's where we meet Hagar. 
And it's important to know who Hagar is because in that society, she would be considered sort of like the lowest of the low. And there are three things we need to know about her. First of all, she was a female in a male-dominated society. She was a woman in a deeply patriarchal society. Second, uh, not only is she female, she is an Egyptian. And in this cultural context where she was, that would have been to be seen as ethnically inferior. And thirdly, she is a slave. Now, some Bible translations use the word servant or maidservant, and, and it kind of maybe gives us a misleading idea of what's going on here. Because when you hear maidservant, you kind of think, oh, is that like Anna on uh, Downton Abbey? You know, uh, this, is, this is a different situation. She is actually, she is actually a slave. She is considered the lowest of the low, yet because she is young enough to bear children, Sarai says to Aram, I have an idea. I want you to sleep with my slave. And, and he does, and, and Hagar gets pregnant. Now, of course, this is shockly, shocking rather to read, and this is a deeply sad part of the story. And to be clear, just because something is described in the Bible, that doesn't mean it is being prescribed or endorsed. And actually, it's clear that Abram and Sarah are going against God's will in this moment. And now, this sort of practice was commonplace in the ancient Near East. It was seen as sort of a form of surrogacy. But of course, this is a very sad reality. But with that said, Sarah is saying to Abram, I have a servant, a slave, and I will give her to you as a secondary wife. Verse 3, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. Now, I want to point out before moving on that there's a parallel actually between this passage and a famous passage in Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis 3, Eve looks at Adam and says, take the fruit. And he does. Here in Genesis 16, Sarai says to Abram, take my slave. And he does. And so there's a connection here that we need to see. And the lesson, just to be clear, is not husbands shouldn't listen to their wives. Not the lesson, just to be real clear. Not the lesson. Uh, here's the lesson we need to draw. It's that when we take matters into our own hands, pain enters the earth. Eve gives Adam the fruit. They eat it. They take matters into their own hands. Pain enters the world. Sarai says to Abram, take my slave. He does, and pain again enters the world. The lesson is that whenever we take matters into our own hands, it leads to pain. It leads to problems. It leads to disorientation. Have you ever taken matters into your own hands? Maybe that's engaging in a, I don't know, a financial decision or a relationship or a job decision without actually consulting God, whether out of fear or impatience or something else. We often take matters into our own hands. And, and often we can rationalize it, right? Uh, you know, but as the Bible says, anything that is not done in faith is sin. Anything that's not coming from this place of trust in God. And so the story goes on. Abram sleeps with Hagar. And, and one morning after several weeks have gone by, Hagar realizes that she is pregnant. Verse 4 says, when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Now, we don't know exactly what that looked like in, in, in sort of kind of practical terms, but after becoming pregnant, it's clear there's some sort of like inner shift that took place within 
Hagar because now she has this promise, that this child, the promise in her womb, and she's feeling probably like, I'm somebody now. And I'm not a slave, I'm somebody. I'm carrying the promise of God in my womb. And so you can imagine that there would be some joy with that, but also perhaps kind of a shift, maybe kind of a newfound confidence, and, and that probably affected, and actually it did. We see here that it affected her relationship with Sarai. And we don't know what this looked like, but just for example, I'm told that in some cultures that for an inferior to look into the eyes of a superior is considered to be disrespectful. So perhaps maybe she begins to look Sarai in the eye. We don't know what this looked like, but we know that she despised Sarai and Sarai got angry, very angry with Hagar, with Abram, with this whole situation. And so Abram basically says, treat her as you wish. And so we read in verse 6 that Sarai mistreats Hagar. And it's so bad that Hagar thinks, I've I've got to get out of here. And so she flees. Now at this point, there's a shift in the story. And if this were a film, the first scene would be focused on this dialogue between uh, Abram and Sarai. But then the camera sort of pans to this scene where Hagar is in the wilderness fleeing from her mistress. And the scene shifts and the attention of God shifts in this moment. And Hagar steps out into the wilderness, afraid for her life. She's used to being treated just horribly. And, 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 and now she's alone, no resources, no one to help her, no family to fall back on. She is all alone. But as she's journeying all alone in the wilderness, someone shows up. God shows up. And he sees her and he calls her by name. The story says, verse 7, the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And by starting the conversation this way, God is saying, I know all about your story. I know who you are. I know your name. I know your occupation. I know your pain. I know your story. And God asked these two questions. Where have you come from and where are you going? Now, you have to know that whenever God asks a question in the Bible, it's not because he doesn't know, right? He's all-knowing, he's omniscient. So when he asks a question, it's actually because revelation is on the way. He's trying to bring insight and clarity to a situation, okay? And so where have you come from? Where are you going? Hagar says these words, verse 8, I'm running away from my mistress. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. Now, why, why would God say that? Is he, is he being callous to her situation? Actually, no. And, and what you have to understand is that what he is doing here is he wants to bless her. And he knows that actually the path to a greater blessing will come through going back. And so God says to Hagar, I'm going to give you even more than you ever dared to ask or imagine. But the way to get it is by you going back. And then something amazing happens. God gives her a promise. Verse 10, the angel, and by the way, this is not just an angel. It's not an angel of the Lord. It's the angel of the Lord. So this is a manifestation of God himself. And he says, quote, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Now, does that remind you of anything? This is sort of an echo of of the promise to Abram. In Genesis 12, where he says, 
that he will give him descendants as numerous as the stars. And so now God looks at Hagar and he says, you too will have descendants too numerous to count. And what makes this promise even more startling than the promise to Abram is this. She is, again, she is a female Egyptian slave. In that culture, she's considered as low and you go, yet God is saying, I see you. I see you. See, God has a way of seeing people who are overlooked by others, people who are invisible to those around them, perhaps even feel invisible to themselves. There was a a famous book written by a guy named H.G. Wells called The Invisible Man. And it's about a scientist who somehow figures out a way to make himself invisible, but unfortunately he cannot figure out how to make himself visible again. He's stuck. And sometimes we feel like that. Sometimes we feel invisible and we don't know if we'll ever be seen again. But God says, I see you. I know you. I love you. He says that to Hagar, and he says that to you. He says that to every person in this room. He says, I see you. Second Chronicles 16, verse 9, it's just this amazing verse that says, the eyes of the Lord search the whole earth. He is the God who sees. And in this moment, Hagar experiences that. She sees the God who sees her. And it actually gets even crazier than that, because God goes on to give further definition to this promise. In verse 11, he says, you are now pregnant. She knew that much. But now he says, you will give birth to a son. They had no ultrasound back then. So this is news to her, right? This is news that not only was she bearing a child, but a son who would, who would be a father to nations. And God goes on, you shall name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard of your misery. Verse 12, he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. And then in verse 13, one of just the most amazing scriptures and just in the, in the whole Bible, it says she gave this name to the Lord. She, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. And this is so amazing. Hagar, who felt forgotten, who was treated so poorly. She is the first person in scripture to give God a name. The one who sees. And God is just exalting her in this moment, this, this slave into a status that no one else had ever had. She gets to name God. And God sees her. And God sees you. I see the God who sees me. He's been looking at her all this time, but now she knows it. Now she experiences it. Now she sees it. She knows that God who is the one who knows her and loves her because he sees her. I see the one who sees me. And this really, this is a picture of what humanity longs for. We long to be seen. We long to be known. We long to be loved. Just to perhaps make this more real, I want to share a personal story of how I um, experienced this recently and um, how I, in a moment, felt unseen by God and then I saw the God who sees me. And it's kind of a vulnerable story, so um, I felt led to share this, though. I'm just going to let you in. And uh, so a week and a half ago, uh, Ansley and I were at a conference for pastors. It was an amazing conference, and uh, 
hosted by just a wonderful uh, church. And we didn't know anyone there except the lead pastor who was an acquaintance of mine. But in all honesty, we don't know each other very well. Um, but it was just an amazing conference. And, and I also met just many uh, amazing people there. And, and if I'm honest, uh, the vast majority of pastors, for the vast majority of pastors and church planners I know, it has been a tough go, especially if you're in California. It is just a challenging dynamic, especially here in Southern California, with just all the challenges we face. Uh, but I met a few pastors there. They're just kind of bucking this trend, and it was so encouraging. And they're just seeing some phenomenal things happen. And and so, for example, at one kind of uh, senior pastors kind of gathering, I sat next to a guy who who planted a church ten years ago, and somehow his church in ten years has planted twelve churches. I'm thinking, I've never even heard of that. And that was just so amazing, and um, just seeing amazing things happen, and then uh, someone turns and gives him this just amazing prophetic word of things God has in store, and I was just so, uh, just so, so happy for him, and kind of just marveling at that. But if I'm honest, at the same time, there's something stirring within me, kind of like, hey, like over here, over here, God, over here, like, God, do you see me? And I just kind of had this thing stirring, and. And, 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 and part of that's just because, you know, again, it's, it's, it's a hard journey. Planning a church is a hard journey. And if I'm honest, we've, you know, we're seeing God do so many amazing things. I mean, we started with just Ansley and I in a call, and now we've got a church, and we're seeing life and growth and amazing things. But one area where it's been really hard is financially, if I'm honest. And so it kind of feels like, gosh, we're still fighting, you know, to pay the bills uh, as a church. So I just had this thing kind of like, God, do you see me? And so at the last session of this day, Ansley and I were, were sitting next to each other, and, and she had something, as we processed later, that she had something very similar uh, stirring in her too. And, and part of what was stirring in her what was kind of just a sense of poverty. And kind of we're coming in as this, uh, these church planners, and we're kind of stepping into it's almost like a Google of churches, right? Like this little startup, and we're just kind of just we're just aware of our poverty. And I, I think there are a number of things that God was doing in that. And we don't normally just walk around with that sense. But I think part of it, God was allowing us to kind of just, I don't know, it's almost like we were feeling a sense of fellowship with our friends who are on the street and just who are struggling to get by. And, and uh, it was just God was doing many things in that. I'll just, can't get into all the layers. But as we were sitting there and there was a panel discussion going on, and Ansley shared with me afterward that uh, during this time that she was kind of picturing herself like, like a street child with just an empty basket, with just an empty basket. And uh, so we're kind of just in this vulnerable spot. And uh, as this panel discussion is happening, one of the pastors, he said, um, uh, the, he said, there's a woman in the back of the room on the couch. And Ansley's looking around like, me? And he said, yeah, you. He said, um, God's highlighting you for me. And I see you with an empty basket. And I see God pouring fruit into that basket until it overflows. And of course, we're starting to cry at this point. And he said, can we pray for you? And she's like, yes. And so uh, the people in the room pray for her. And it was just a, a really sweet time. And then uh, then the, the senior pastor who was leading the time, he said, uh, Michael and Ansley said, uh, would you mind? I, I would like to invite you to come forward to the front. And we're thinking, okay, we're all in. Like, whatever God's got, and we didn't know what was going to happen. And so we walked up front, and again, this kind of feels like a vulnerable moment. We walked up front, and um, he said, um, and this is a man who is, what I would describe as very prophetic. And, and he, we've talked a little bit about our journey, but he really, I mean, we haven't gotten into any deal, detail whatsoever. And he said, I feel like God is saying that this is a new day for your church. This is a new season. 
And I didn't tell him this, but as I went on retreat this summer, one of the things I kept hearing the Lord say is, I'm doing a new thing. And I've, other people, I just somebody, a friend from Northern California emailed me, who's a prayer warrior, emailed me yesterday saying, hey, I feel like God showed me there's a new thing coming in your church. God's doing a new thing. And so he said, I feel like God's doing a new thing in your church. Uh, and and uh, then he said, and I want to be the first person to sow into it. Now, a little backstory so you to understand the impact of this story. Um, just the prior week, I had met with our church council. We meet every month, and I just shared that, you know, as I look at our financial projections and all that, that if things kind of continue going apace, that we need $10,000 in order to make it to December. December is always our biggest giving month by uh, at least triple, quadruple, quintuple. And I said, we need $10,000 to make it to December. And uh, so I said, I have total peace about it. I have total trust in God. I believe that where God guides, God provides. But I don't know where the money will come from. But I trust God. And some of you who are in that room remember that conversation. And so we prayed and just trusted God. Well, the craziest thing happened. So this pastor, he says, um, and I want to be the first person to sow into this new season. He opens up his wallet. This is, again, I don't, he's not in our denomination. I don't know him that well. He opens up his wallet, takes out everything in there, and he puts it in our hands. And then all around the room, pastors start standing. One by one, they come up, open their wallets, empty them, put them in our hands. And so, we're, of course, we're, we're weeping at this point. And they gather around us. They start to pray. And, and, um, and, and as they're praying, I mean, they're praying very specific things that no one could know but God. They're prophesying over us just very specific things and just words of life, encouragement, words of truth. And then it gets even better. The craziest thing happens, this kind of pastor acquaintance, he says, um, God's put it on my heart to have our church write your church a check for $10,000. And so, of course, at this point, I'm like weeping uncontrollably. And he also said, I'll just share this. This feels, again, vulnerable to share. But he says, he says, I declare the famine is over. I declare the famine is over. And he's not a name it and claim it kind of guy who's just going to say that to say that. This is someone who hears from the Lord. And so we just... We just hold on to that. But I just share that so you can see that, again, at one moment, I literally was, was asking God, literally. Now, generally, I'm not, this is not where I'm at. But in this moment, I was saying, God, do you see me? Just three minutes later, I see the God who sees me. Now, that kind of magnitude of a thing, that doesn't always happen. But I just, I want you to, to know and to hear that this is real, that we, we serve a real God and he sees you. He sees you. I don't care what you're going through. He sees you. I don't care how much brokenness, how much pain, how much aloneness, how much confusion. God sees you. He knows you. He's love you. His promises are sure. He has not left you. He has not forsaken you. He loves you. Nothing can separate you from his love. He is with you. He knows you. He sees you. So just as God saw Hagar, he sees you. And this is really the good news of Christianity. And think about it. This is so amazing that God wasn't content to see us from his transcendence. He said, no, I want to put on human flesh. and I want to see you with my own two eyes. And Jesus came and he took on human flesh and he went to the cross and he died for us because he loves us so much. He is the God who sees. He's the God who knows. He is the God who loves. So no matter what you're going through today, I want you to hear 
that God sees you. Not only does he see your present, not only does he see your past and the pain, but he also sees your future. Hagar probably thought her life was over, but God saw her destiny and he spoke that over her and he called her to it. And so God not only sees our past and our present, he sees our future. And what's amazing is that on a human level, the promise that, that, that Hagar received of a son who would give birth to nations on a purely human level in this cultural context, that was the greatest promise you could receive. Yet for her, that paled in comparison to the reality of being seen by God. That is the greatest promise and hope of all. That is the greatest promise. And so just as we close, I'd like to invite the band to come back up. And um, here's, here's the invitation today, because I, I, I know I, I, we can struggle to experience this. And so how can we take a step toward actually growing in our awareness of the God who sees us? And, and so here's what I want to suggest. Here, here's how we can grow in this. And it's by letting ourselves be seen by God. We grow in this by letting ourselves be seen by God. And since the Garden of Eden, one of the things human beings have struggled with is actually hiding and kind of, you know, as Greg talked about last month, about kind of giving God the Heisman and kind of keeping him at a safe distance. And so the invitation is actually to let yourself be seen by God. And actually, this is central to what prayer is about. Prayer isn't just about giving God a laundry list of things we want and need, and he asks us to come to him with our needs and, and requests, but actually central to prayer is, is, is union with God, about communion, about intimacy with him. And so the encouragement is as you take time to pray to, yes, come to God with your request, but also take some time just to be in his presence, just to sit in the stillness with God and allow the God who sees to see you. No, no words, no walls up, no, no facade, just allowing God to see you. I just want to maybe lead us in an exercise uh, as we close. And maybe you just want to maybe just close your eyes. And if it would help you, maybe you can put your palms out just in a posture of receiving and um, maybe take a deep breath. And I just want to invite us just to be still in the presence of God. We're going to take just a minute. And if your mind wonders, that's normal. And just a simple way to turn your attention back to God is just to say, Jesus. Jesus. So I want you just to close your eyes and just see the God who sees you. Let's take a moment and we'll pray and come to the table.